Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Friday, December 24th, 2021, nearing our last show of the year. This is Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer at New Mexico PBS, and we are so thankful for you tuning in. We hope you all have had a safe and healthy 2021 for the most part. Here is hoping for a much better and improved 2022. We definitely would all love to see a change. We would love to get back in the studio with all of our great contributors. We will hope that will happen soon. We uh, This is a very special episode of New Mexico in Focus, one of our favorites of the year. We count down the top 10 stories of the year. We'll be doing that this week and next week. This week, it's numbers 10 through number 6. And we have a great line opinion panel of working journalists from across the state to help us do that. Uh, we have Jessica Onsiras from the Carlsbad Current Argus, Algernon Diamasa from the Las Cruces Sun News, Dan McKay of the Albuquerque Journal, and Julianne Grimm of the Santa Fe Reporter. We're going to jump in right now with the 10th and 9th biggest stories of the year that was. And we'd love to hear what your top stories of the year as well are. This is always a challenging exercise to go through the year, look back at what were the big stories of the year. For us, it's often big themes. And so that is why you will hear a couple things like COVID that will come up in a couple different places. But uh, it was such an all-inclusive story that it falls into a lot of different categories. But here we go. We're going to kick it off with the 10th and 9th biggest stories of 2021. What do you think is there? Well, let's not keep you waiting. Here's host Gene Grant. Here with us virtually, of course, we start with Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. We also welcome back Dan McKay from the Albuquerque Journal's Capitol Bureau. Also with us is Jessica Onsuras, news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus. And we welcome to the virtual table for the first time, Algernon Damasa of the Las Cruces Sun News. Thank you, Algernon, for joining us. Coming in at number 10, guys, on our non-scientific list, New Mexico found itself at the center of the entertainment world in 2021, but for all the wrong reasons. An investigation is still going into a shooting on the set of the film Rust near Santa Fe involving actor and producer Alec Baldwin. Mr. Baldwin is now claiming he didn't even pull the trigger when the gun went off, killing cinematographer Helena Hutchins. And Julianne, this happened at the famed Bonanza Ranch near Santa Fe, a place of some pride around here. Has this taken some of the shine off this industry that has been, you know, such a beacon of economic development and other things for the last decade for us? I mean, I think the appetite the American public has for violence in film and television is not diminished by this tragedy that mm-hmm. happened in Santa Fe, um, to answer your question. But mm-hmm. but I do think that this um, you know story was really interesting for the local press because it's really a Hollywood story mm-hmm. that happened in our neighborhood um, versus like a New Mexico story um, you know, that has a, a real sense of place here. It's like all the, the, the cast of characters, if you will, the decision makers, um, many of the attorneys who subsequently get involved um, are really centered in Los Angeles. And so you're seeing the LA Times do a lot of really good journalism around this topic, um, mm-hmm. along with lots of other national media. Lots and lots and lots. Absolutely. Dan McKay 
Interesting, a lot to talk about corners allegedly being cut on the set and, you know, the role that may have played in the tragedy. You know, we talked about this before, but does this stick to New Mexico film workers themselves? Do we get a bad reputation once the dust has settled on all of this? Well, that's difficult to say. Um, I do think that there is definitely increased debate uh, throughout the country about the safety uh, of film workers, uh, workers in general, but also the conditions on film sets. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, legis the legislature had a recent hearing on uh, film incentives and the tax program, and uh, the shooting did not come up, which I thought was really interesting mm -hmm. that it was um, a topic that either by coincidence or by agreement was didn't surface in this major hearing over over um, the expenditure of taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Jessica, when you really think about it, it, interesting the timing. This all came about out on the heels of a historic vote by IATSE unions to authorize a strike in part over work conditions. That strike appears to have been averted, as we all know. But does this raise red flags about how much the film industry has its own house in order? Definitely. I think um, a lot of the big questions prior to talk of a strike was not only the safety of the workers, but really working conditions all around. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, they did end up not striking and they ended up signing up an, an agreement that addresses some of these kinds of things like raises and pensions and health care. Um, but also maybe speaking to what happened in, in the Rust film set, things like getting enough rest time in between shifts for the workers who are on these film sets. So um, it's great to see that they're focusing more on safety of these you know, workers who are always behind the scenes. It's not the people that you see in front of the camera, but the people behind the camera. Mm -hmm. um, so it's good to see that they're focusing on safety there. Yeah. Algernon, I'm curious, you know, Las Cruces has, has, has its share of film activity. Has this been an issue for in the Las Cruces area in southern New Mexico? I think that you have a similar conversation in Las Cruces that you do across the industry mm -hmm. as far as uh, safety and pay. I mean, there's a lot of talk about how to develop the infrastructure needed to attract more production work mm -hmm. and generate more employment. But it's not just about landing a job and earning money. It's also about the quality of life while you're working, as well as safety and the feeling you have when you go home at the end of the day. Safety does take time, and in the film industry, time really is money. The cliche holds true. And so the concessions that are needed to assure firearm safety and other weapons and, and other uh, fireworks, explosives, and things that we do on sets mm -hmm. uh, is just crucially part of that conversation, and it's going to cost the industry money. Mm -hmm. You know, Julianne, there was a lot of speculation, I, again, I mentioned this before, about the gun being used for target practice on the set for bottles and cans and that kind of thing. You know, it's a period gun, of course, and I, I just, I got to wonder how this affects people who were professionals in the business in Santa Fe. Again, we're kind of asking the same question just in a different way, but I'm just really curious. Something has to be talked about in Santa Fe, it seems to me. About maybe self-policing a little bit better on film sets to avoid these things? Well, I mean, the, the gun that was used was a Colt 45 revolver. I mm -hmm. think that a lot of people in the West are really familiar with that weapon. It's a weapon that's depicted on television and, and in film a lot. Um, it's a weapon that requires the hammer to be drawn back before the bullet can be discharged. And the bullet is only discharged when someone touches the trigger. Mm -hmm. And um, contrary to, you know, the narrative that Alec Baldwin gave on national television, um, 
you know, something else happened. I think the investigation right. is slow uh, to the eyes of, again, people are kind of used to CSI solving things on television in 60 minutes. Good but, point. you know, this incident <laughs> happened on October 21st in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. The Santa Fe County Sheriff is in charge of the investigation. They have sent ballistics to the FBI. Uh, we're not sure if those are back or not, but it, they would appear to not be. We haven't heard anything about them. Uh, the district attorney here in Santa Fe was really pressured, I think, by that ABC special into giving a statement um, in which she really said nothing about the charges. You know, charges haven't been filed yet. Mm -hmm. Charges still could be filed. Um, you know, she didn't say this, Mary uh, Carmack outlines is her name, but, mm -hmm. you know, Alec Baldwin has gone on television, um, not only saying he didn't pull the trigger, but also saying that he's pretty confident he's not going to be charged. Um, and, and I'm not sure that that confidence is, is well placed. Um, and I, I can't help but think that if this incident happened between, say, two local filmmakers who were shooting in their backyard, mm -hmm. um, if one of them wouldn't be sitting in jail mm. right now. That's, a, that's an interesting point. I had not thought of that angle. That's interesting. Hey, Dan, let's finish with this. You sort of touched on this earlier. I appreciate it. I want to bring it back about what could be done, be done by the state to protect film workers here in New Mexico. Is there any kind of a movement you're hearing that asking for legislation? Uh, I haven't heard anything about legislation at this mm -hmm. point. I do think that there are um, administrative uh, actions that can be taken. Um, by the occupational workplace safety uh, agencies within the state. Um, so I do think that's a possibility. Uh, as I said, I am interested to see how the shooting, uh, you know, what role it plays in sort of this broader political debate about right. supporting the film industry in New Mexico and, um, it, and its contributions to the economy. Mm -hmm. Good points there. Hey, moving now to our ninth biggest story of 2021, Cheryl Williams Stapleton was a roundhouse fixture for more than two decades, but that all came to an abrupt end after an early morning raid and subsequent indictment on charges she embezzled money at her job at Albuquerque Public Schools. Ms. Williams Stapleton has continued to claim her innocence, but she did resign her seat in the State House of Representatives just days after that raid. And Dan, I'm going to start with you. What sticks out to you from New Mexico's latest political scandal? Uh, well, I think one of the interesting things is that, um, you know, Cheryl Williams Stapleton may not have had quite as high a profile as, say, a governor or a House speaker, but um, she was the number two person in the House. She mm -hmm. has um, uh, um, a kind of a really dominant personality. I mean, she's just um, she's one of those people who when she speaks in a debate, um, it's just very forceful mm -hmm. and kind of everybody pays attention and she was not shy about uh, confronting people within her own party, much less people in the other party. Um, so I, I feel like the Roundhouse just, uh, it feels like a different place without sort of that kind of big dominant personality. Mm -hmm. Al Algernon, we've done a lot in recent years to try and cut down on these types of scandals, including creating the state's first independent ethics commission. But what are we still missing here that allowed this to apparently happen? Well, I'm not really sure. And that's the thing is that an ethics commission uh, responds to things and establishes the line of play and mm -hmm. and interprets. But, you know, those are those are reactive features. And, you know, I don't know that 
an ethics commission can be looked to as a way to prevent things from happening. This is really about how do you respond when something does happen, whether it's accidental or premeditated. Mm -hmm. Good points there. Jessica, you don't, Albuquerque Public Schools is not exactly around the corner from you, but I want to tell you they recently approved new procurement processes after the scandal, apparently they didn't have an official procurement policy in place before, especially around sole source contracts, which around these parts is a real difficulty, sole source. APS did alert authorities to these allegations, but should they have done more to protect against it in the first place? Well, so definitely I think that one of the things that every school district that I've ever worked with is focus is on policies and procedures in place and making, making sure that there are um, ways to catch this. And, and to APS's credit, they did have an employee who saw something funny, um, spoke up and actually did the right thing, which led to all of this. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're talking, should they do more? Definitely. Those are public dollars that we're talking about. Um, they're... Um, the, the thing to take away from this, I think, is that we should be paying more attention, not just our own employee, the employees within school districts, mm -hmm. but those of us in the public who see these um, contracts go into place and these contracts awarded. We should be paying attention. Mm -hmm. You know, interesting, uh, Algernon, the scandal pushes us all away from us. Does the scandal push us at all away from a citizen legislature? The reason I ask that, has the time come to make these paid jobs or do you see momentum increasing towards that idea? I don't know that something like this necessarily turns the public against the idea of a citizen legislature because there's so much suspicion about a professional political class, we might say, mm -hmm. and their susceptibility to corruption. Um, I think wherever there's opportunity, access, power, um, you're going to run into uh, pockets where corruption can take place. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe the idea isn't that we should be moving towards um, a corruption-free world, although we can certainly minimize it, but <laughs> really have a world where we respond clearly and effectively to corruption, whether the uh, legislators are citizens or not. I do think, however, that that doesn't excuse us from having the conversation we need to have about a legislative body where people are part-time and unpaid except for per diems mm -hmm. and how that may press people to directions that might include corruption or uh, at least uh, the appearance of that. And yeah. so um, I don't know that it really pushes us in one direction or another, but it shows one more reason that we have to have that conversation and consider the merits of a well-paid, well-monitored, legislative body. I'd like to allow you all to take a kind of a cut at this question because it's an interesting one. I get this feedback all the time about the citizen legislature. And Julianne, you know, same question. Does this move us one way or the other about part-time paid, unpaid people? Or is there something more to come out of this? I mean, I, I don't really feel like that's the big takeaway from mm -hmm. this particular incident. You know, this person was employed by APS and a pretty good job and had a good salary, also had a business that was um, apparently right. operating and, and relatively successful, a restaurant in Albuquerque. So I'm not sure you can make the argument that like poverty drove someone to corruption. Um, I, you know, I like the way that, that Algernon framed it about an, an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, as someone who's running a small business, um, 
watching every expenditure, every penny that we spend on records requests, it is really hard to conceive of someone being able to make this sort of get away with a million dollars of public money. Right. Uh, we just got a press release this week about someone from Sandia Labs who got prosecuted for spending $136,000 on a lab credit card oh, wow. for uh, personal purchases. And it's really hard for me to comprehend how that scale uh, of, of fraud and, and corruption can occur in these organizations. I, I'm pretty baffled by it. Interesting points, I'm glad you got that in. Dan, uh, same question again. Are you hearing any scuttle even among the legislatures that perhaps the situation moved them one way or the other about part-time versus full-time? Uh, people have been pretty careful about what they say about this publicly. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that there's been a movement in the legislature um, uh, for several years now looking for ways to uh, provide them with a salary. Right now, they, they do get reimbursement for costs and per diem, but they don't draw a specific salary. Uh, and there's been a lot of debate over providing a salary so that um, a broader uh, selection of people could run. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be that the Cheryl Williams Stapleton uh, indictment surfaces in that debate and is used as a tool to, to push uh, some of these ideas that they've already been kicking around. Um, but at, at this point, you know, people, uh, it's been a topic people shy away from speaking about publicly. Yeah, that's a good point there. Jessica, same, you know, do you have a sense where you're sitting that perhaps this is pushing citizens or even legislatures down your way one way or the other? You know, I think I would echo what Julianne said on, on all those fronts, maybe dive a little bit deeper and say that it's, well, it's not pushing one way or the other. There are conversations I think need to happen um, that talk about really the entrenchment of power in, in Santa Fe, right? We are, it, this was pretty shocking because we're talking about a legislature, a legislator who is well-known, loved, um, had pretty extensive power within, within the ranks there. And um, how could someone not notice what was happening is, is the big question. That's an interesting point there. Um, Algernon, interesting when you think about it, we've had two special sessions to deal with redistricting, cannabis, and a few other things. Is it about money? I mean, we seem to have plenty of money, so it really can't be that. Well, uh, it's not entirely about money, mm -hmm. but I mean, just because there's revenue coming into state coffers does not necessarily feel to the citizen that they have opportunities mm -hmm. to thrive and succeed. And uh, I mean, if we're talking about cannabis, I think that cannabis is sort of this wide, it opens this wide open space uh, for where people imagine that they will have an opportunity for enterprise, as long as they also bear in mind that it's uh, uh, the, the, the costs up front of entering that marketplace are tend to be higher than people expect when right. they're just getting in. Yeah, good point there. And down your way, hemp as well. Uh, it's an expensive proposition to get into. That's all the time we have on those topics. Still ahead this week, our sixth and seventh top stories of the year. Plus, Necessity breeds innovation when it comes to efforts to make sure everyone has enough to eat here in New Mexico. And we're going to keep right on rolling with our top stories of 2021. Here we come to the eighth and seventh biggest stories of the year. And one of these you'll hear is actually a story out of Texas, but is having huge impacts here in New Mexico. That's the only tease I'll give you there, see if you can put the dots together, but we'll jump right in with that here in a moment. 
And again, if you uh, have any suggestions for our line uh, list of the top stories of the year, think we had something off, missing something, we'd love to hear from you. Hit up any of our social media channels. That's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Let us know what your list looks like. Again, this is a way to look back at the year that was. It's not scientific. We don't claim that it is, but it's a great way to do a bit of a retrospective on a wild and woolly year here in New Mexico. So let's jump right back in with eighth and seventh biggest stories of the year. Here again, the Line Opinion Panel and host Gene Grant. Welcome back to the line now as we continue counting down the top stories of the year. Coming in at number eight on our non-scientific list is the local impacts of Texas's historic abortion ban. The U.S. Supreme Court recently upheld that law, which effectively restricts abortions after about six weeks from conception. The justices did say that legal challenges to that law can continue. And Algernon, there is no way New Mexico won't feel the impacts of that law as women flock to the land of enchantment for service. But... How sustainable is that long term? Well, it's not as though we have a whole lot of centers in New Mexico to accommodate um, mm -hmm. that need. And so um, although New Mexico did take the step uh, preemptively of uh, striking, a, uh, repealing uh, a statutory abortion ban in our state, um, if people are, are coming to New Mexico from Texas for services, um, you might see wait times and you might uh, see a problem, an obstacle to other uh, women's health care services as well. Mm -hmm. um, Jessica, you know, down your part of the world, of course, where you are, I mean, Planned Parenthood says there are 55,000 abortions in Texas annually and New Mexicans can't possibly absorb that kind of, you know, number. I mean, are you are you seeing things already? What, what's your reporting telling you? Well, let me just start by saying that the resources in New Mexico are not very huge for this type of service for women, right? If we're talking about Southern New Mexico, they don't exist here at all, really. You're looking at services offered in urban areas like Albuquerque and Bernalillo County. So the impact would further be seen in, in Northern New Mexico than mm -hmm. this part of the state. But we are closer to Texas. So we hear a lot of the conversations and a lot of the, a lot of the concerns. And to answer your question, I don't think with the resources that we have on hand that we will be able to, um, as you said, absorb that need. Um, but I do think that it's maybe an opportunity to start that conversation about how we can improve those services or begin to offer more expansive ones. Mm -hmm. Julianne, I got a tough question and others may want to uh, get in on this too. Is the reversal of Roe v. Wade almost inevitable at this point, as some people have suggested, not me, considering the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court and what would the impacts be on New Mexico? I mean, I'm not a Supreme Court um, scholar, you mm -hmm. know, I would say as, as a woman um, in New Mexico, an American woman, a woman of the planet Earth, that um, that we need to maintain reproductive freedom and healthcare access for women everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I have to say that, you know, the what Algernon brought up, the New Mexico uh, statutory ban that was on the books mm -hmm. uh, was a really important um, change for, you know, advocates who are concerned that the federal law might make New Mexico's law actually a factor. Um, and so, you know, they worked for a long time to get that repealed. And there were some changes in the makeup of the um, legislative bodies, particularly the Senate, that, you know, made that possible um, during this past legislative session. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that it is, you know, 
uh, uncontestably true that New Mexico's health care system is beleaguered on all fronts. Um, that includes health care for women, that includes abortion services, and that includes birth control um, access, um, especially in rural areas, uh, like Jessica pointed out. Um, but even in Santa Fe, um, even before this happened, there were women who had to travel from Santa Fe to Albuquerque to get these services. And so you can imagine that with all the women that are coming from Texas, and this is not an if scenario. This is a when, this is a happening right now scenario. Right. Um, in order for women to get those services, they have to cross the state lines and our state line is the line that they're crossing. Mm -hmm. Dan, same question, uh, Roe Ro v. Wade, uh, and maybe some things I'm interested you might be hearing about this. Some folks you know, who, who are very against Roe v. Wade, of course, are seeing this as an opportunity. What's your reporting telling you what's happening in Santa Fe and Albuquerque? Well, um, it, New Mexico does not have very strict um, ab abortion restrictions. Services are um, limited by other factors, um, you know, kind of the broader healthcare system here kind of being overwhelmed. But mm -hmm. um, there, uh, it certainly looks important that that criminal statute was uh, repealed given the uh, potential changes at the federal level. You know, that certainly could have a real practical impact. It wasn't just a theoretical debate. Um, as Julianne mentioned, it has already changed the legislature. Um, you know, an initial push to repeal that uh, criminal abortion statute failed, and um, a bunch of legislators got, uh, uh, they lost their reelection bids. Um, so it's already changed the legislature itself. Um, you know, House Republicans in particular have still uh, pushed for more stringent abortion restrictions. Um, and, uh, you know, they are just heavily outnumbered and um, it's difficult to see any of that advancing unless um, there's some sort of cataclysmic event in, in local politics that, that uh, changes the numbers of the legislature. Mm -hmm. Algernon, of course, in Southern New Mexico, it's a little more conservative in general terms on these things, but in Las Cruces, where you are, may not be directly applicable. You, of course, is a, you're a college town. But I'm curious what you're, you're sensing from folks in your part of the state on the idea of abortions. Just, just period. If somebody wanted to open an abortion clinic in Las Cruces, could they have success with it or would it be open up a, a real hornet's nest? Well, I mean, I, there, would be, I would, there would certainly be some public comment, but um, there would also be a lot of support um, for uh, a facility that would provide services at a time when uh, there's just not enough, uh, there aren't enough providers. Uh, and again, it's not just it's not just aborting pregnancies. It's right. also birth control and other health care services mm -hmm. and uh, as well as counseling and re and referrals to financial assistance. These are some of the reasons that women seek abortions is because uh, of their financial circumstances or other circumstances. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, th there would certainly be opposition. There would probably be people uh, waving signs. Uh, there would certainly be a lot of dialogue and comment about that. But um, at least in the Las Cruces area, the Doña Ana County area, where we are bordering Texas, um, you know, I, I think that's certainly a possibility. The limits would probably more be more infrastructural, financial, and also just uh, the lack of providers in general, physicians, mm -hmm. nurses, and other medical professionals yeah. uh, in the state, especially as long as the COVID-19 emergency persists. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's a difficulty for providers to get into that, you know, into the medical world. I, I appreciate you pointing that out. Jessica, we'll, we'll finish with you. Could uh, an abortion clinic be open in Carlsbad and not be 
an amazing controversy to, to help absorb some of these things? Well, let me share just a story that we reported on um, earlier in this this uh, controversy. There was a local doctor, who a, a woman's doctor, who was providing just advice about how to seek abortions, and um, she was effectively marched to the border of the county with a thank you but no thank you. Wow. Um, so we are in a very conservative part of the state, and I think that you will see that play a major factor in whether those type of services are offered here. Now, I will add to that by saying I think that this has been an issue that has um, given a lot of people room to speak up. So those who normally would stay quiet about their support for expanding those types of services here are speaking up. We saw a lot of women's marches in southern New Mexico accompanying this following Texas's um, abortion um, bill. And we saw that in Carlsbad as much as we did in other rural communities surrounding us. So I think that um, while we might not embrace it, that there are definitely those voices out there who are who are getting louder about being able to voice their opinion on this. Mm -hmm. New Mexico's own Deb Holland comes in at number seven on our list after becoming the first ever Native American cabinet secretary. President Joe Biden appointed her as secretary of the Department of the Interior. And Jessica, staying with you, she has really wasted no time in showing the impact a Native voice can have on the on federal policy. That is correct. So yeah. we saw her do some pretty, um, you know, strong moves in her um, first months in office. Um, Chaco Canyon, the protections laid on top of them, on top of that uh, historic site. It's a 20 year moratorium on oil and gas exploration. A lot of controversy surrounding that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that when it comes to um, the secretary, a lot of people are excited to see what else she will do, um, just as a woman of Native American heritage and a woman in the cabinet. Mm -hmm. uh, Julianne, place names get a lot of attention, and it's very interesting, the power of a name. I'm curious your thoughts on, on the secretary's uh, attack, her approach, and what she wants to go after with this position. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, people are the most proud of Deb about is her advocacy on um, behalf of voices that perhaps have not been amplified to the degree, uh, and there's no perhaps about it. It's mm -hmm. that she is an advocate for voices that have not been amplified to the degree that they deserve. Mm -hmm. And she promised to be fierce for all New Mexicans and in fact, for, for all Americans. And I think that um, her, you know, saying like, this is not about politically correct language. This is about, you know, moral identification. This is a serious matter. It's, it's not okay uh, to use these slurs that refer to, you know, the female anatomy and, and other things. And, and I'm, I'm really proud uh, of Deb. And I think a lot of New Mexicans are proud and um, just uh, agree, can't wait to see what else uh, she's going to do in addition to like, you know, running the Boston Marathon in a ribbon skirt. Just I forgot uh, about that. That's right. <laughs> she was terrific on that. Hey, Dan, you know, um, boarding schools is obviously an issue going across North America, meaning the U.S. and Canada. And so but right here in Albuquerque and around New Mexico as well. Uh, it's almost like she's the perfect cabinet secretary at the perfect time. The timing could not be better to push these issues forward. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly interesting to have uh, such a you know a prominent New Mexican playing a role in all of these sort of national and international debates. Um, you know, she really has emerged as an important political voice in New Mexico and voice um, for communities that uh, a lot of people probably don't think about, especially in other parts of the country. 
Um, you know, I know that her uh, her election just to Congress, not to mention her her appointment as a cabinet secretary. Mm -hmm. You know, I have talked to people who, um, you know, they're just, uh, you know, in tears seeing someone who looks like them speaks uh, indigenous languages, you know, um, has ascended to that level. And, you know, she's she's really become an important voice on, on all kinds of issues just beyond the Interior Department. Mm -hmm. Hey, Algernon, what kind of bump do we get here in New Mexico with this appointment? Could she have perhaps done more, as Dan mentioned, as a member of the U.S. House, or are we better off here as a state with this position? I think it is a unique opportunity that we have someone from New Mexico where we are such a diverse state and we have so many uh, you know, native peoples here. Um, to have someone in this position, the Interior is a cabinet position that arguably has a lot of power and influence relative to other cabinet positions. Mm -hmm. You have somebody who not only has the, the background she has as a Native American, but also this working class background. This is a mom who has struggled with student loan payments and, and trying to make ends meet. And then she is elevated to this position of power. So. Um, I think the representation of her economic background as well as her ethnic background really matters. And also, um, frankly, the work that she's doing around names and language generally and telling our history uh, matters. It's not just symbolic. I, I interviewed at one point um, um, a Native American leader from New Mexico's Arenas Valley, and he said something really interesting. We were talking about you know, we have landmarks named after Confederate heroes. We have, you know, Baylor Canyon and, and other uh, uh, names that are kind of repugnant um, for people who are steeped in this history. And he said that he thinks that um, Americans generally may have forgotten the power of language mm. and what is brought into being by the way we name things and the, and the way we construct our stories. And uh, I think that this is just a really unique contribution that a New Mexican citizen can make. And so that doesn't necessarily put anything in our pocketbook, but I think morally and historically, I think it really uh, puts us in a prominent place to help improve the country. Mm -hmm. Well said, Algernon. Uh I love that. Uh, Jessica, is there, in your part of the world, oil and gas is obviously gonna be a potential point of conflict with the, with the Secretary of the Interior. What, what's, what's happening down there? Is she persona non grata at this point? Are people just sort of waiting to see? What, what's, what's your sense of it? I think you put it perfectly. People are waiting to see. Now we understand that with her appointment to this administration, an administration that has been very upfront about their move toward renewables and away from fossil fuels, mm -hmm. um, that there's an expectation that she will be um, bringing that message strongly across the U.S. and specifically to the Permian Basin, our oil and gas producing region here in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, but there is still a lot of wait and see because there are questions about how do you honor the um, what's best for the nation in terms of economy and growth while also pushing these um and these pardon um while also asking the nation to accept this this move toward a new this green energy new climate change um environmental protections sure. um all around so we are just kind of biding our time and hoping that um there will be a an equitable path forward for both the industry and for the nation mm -hmm. Julianne, New Mexicans faced a rare special election to replace Ms. Holland in the U.S. House. Democrat Melanie Stansbury, of course, won that race handily over Republican state lawmaker Mark Morris. 
Does that election solidify Democrats' hold over that seat in next year's crucial midterm elections? I mean, will redistricting play a role in that? <laughs> to ask a question, you know, back to you. I know that we're going to talk about redistricting a little mm -hmm. bit later, but um, you know, really, I think that we're going to be in a. It looks like, anyway, if all, all this gets signed by the governor, we'll be in a situation where we have a. Uh, congressional districts that are different from any that we've seen in New Mexico in recent history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I do think that, you know, similarly to the the uh, exercise that, that Algernon just participated in and of, of are we better with Deb Holland as Secretary of Interior versus a member of Congress, mm -hmm. I think you can have that same conversation of like, are we better with Melanie Stansbury at Congress versus being um, at the Roundhouse? And I, I think we lost a strong advocate for water and somebody who um, could have been really a rising leader um, for state Dems, uh, you know, going going to Washington. So I think that's a consideration also uh, worth a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Dan, I got to get you in on this one. Uh, you know, political shifting ground is, is pretty common, of course, but CD1 has been a traditionally very safe Democrat seat, even even with Republicans being elected you know, in that district. They were sort of, you know, not so hardcore. How do you see the future of this district? I, I couldn't imagine it flipping blue, I'm sorry, red at any point, but in our politics right now, you never know. Yeah, one of the interesting things is, you know, the first congressional district has been an Albuquerque-based district. And um, if the redistricting proposal holds, um, it will now include, um, you know, a lot of rural counties, not just the East Mountains, but stretch all the way down. Um, toward the southeast, although not quite into the oil patch. Mm -hmm. um, and so th that will give uh, Stansbury or whoever is running for the, the seat um, kind of a broader constituency, um, maybe. Uh, it may not be quite so Albuquerque focused. There may be some more um, uh, debate about agricultural issues and things like that. Um, you know, it is a little too early to say about the political environment. Um, we'll have to see if these these maps get uh, signed into law and mm -hmm. and who emerges to challenge her. But, um, you know, I think she certainly will have uh, some different constituencies to answer to. Mm -hmm. That's all the time we have for now. When we come back to the line, it's our sixth biggest story of 2021. And we have reached our sixth biggest story of the year that was 2021. And uh, this is a story we have covered a lot throughout the year. And it's nice that it comes in at number six because it's a standalone segment. We got a little more time to dive into this one. And it is the housing crisis. We've had eviction moratoriums in place because of COVID-19. But we know, especially from some of the great reporting done by Searchlight New Mexico over the last year plus, that evictions are still happening. We also know that there's going to be a flood of evictions when the moratorium is lifted, whenever that happens. And we also know from the reporting we've done with Serge Martinez, a line regular and a UNM Law School professor who deals with these issues, New Mexico's eviction process moves very, very fast, and that can really complicate these issues. So going to dive into all of that. That doesn't even talk about the soaring rental prices, whether we need a return to rental control. We're going to get into all that here now with our line opinion panel. Let's send it right back to host Gene Grant. Welcome back to the line. We reached number six on our countdown of the top stories of 2021. New Mexico's looming housing crisis. 
Whether it be the shortage of affordable housing, soaring rental rates, or the rash of evictions, despite so-called moratoriums related to the COVID pandemic, New Mexico is reaching a breaking point. And Jessica, we spent time with you before the pandemic looking at the situation in the Permian Basin, you might recall. With all those transient oil and gas workers, we, you know, we talked to one person that actually moved to Roswell and commutes to Carlsbad because of the high housing prices there. Has anything changed since we were with you back then? No, but you know, so we're no stranger to housing crisis here and you're right, it's linked to our oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. um, and we have been working on solutions and you know, maybe imperfectly. Um, we've done things like actively recruiting developers to the area. Um, maybe they focus a little bit more on building hotels and temporary housing. Um, but we have also started to talk about how do we do recruiting for development of single family um, dwellings and things like townhouses, non-traditional types of housing that you wouldn't see in Southern Southeastern New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Julianne, I got to bump this up to you. Of course, all communities have some affordable housing, but why isn't it a bigger priority? Julianne, I know this is something Santa Fe has struggled with a lot, and there has been announcements for some groundbreaking on some, um, some properties to, to deal with this, but why is it such a struggle in Santa Fe traditionally? It's about money yeah. uh, from my perspective. I mean, you know, the housing crisis is felt acutely here and there's a big gap between, you know, the haves and the have nots classically. Um, I, I pulled a couple statistics for you in anticipation of this question. And I think that, you know, these speak for themselves. And in, in the third quarter housing report that's put out by the Santa Fe Association of Realtors, the median single family home price in Santa Fe is $591,000. Wow. And, you know, if you live in a condo or a townhouse, um, your median is still coming in at $352,000. I just talked to some friends from high school who live in Redding, Pennsylvania, where they own a house on a city street that costs them $58,000. Right. <laughs> so you can really, uh, you know, think about not only how the price of housing in Santa Fe um, compares to other parts of New Mexico, but really, you know, other parts of the whole country. And I think, you know, you see the government here um, in fits and starts trying to deal with this with various kinds of regulation. Um, we have a, an affordable housing ordinance in the city that requires developers to dedicate a certain portion of homes that they build to be sold to a certain um, income qualified bracket of homeowners at a certain price. But that has not been enough to really change the picture. Hmm. Um, we're also seeing a lot of multifamily uh, complex construction happening for really the first time um, in the in the last few years. You know, there was a big period of time when there were no new apartment complexes in Santa Fe, and um, average rents here are more than a thousand dollars a month. Um, so, you know, you've, you've also seen activity on the very opposite end of the spectrum, where you're talking about um, trying to solve uh, the homelessness issue and trying to provide housing for people who have no housing. Um, and you've seen the city and the county both purchase hotels and, uh, you know, renovate them in, into housing. Um, but, you know, those kinds of solutions really take a long time to attack what is becoming an, an increasing big problem. Mm -hmm. Wow. Over almost 600,000. That's, that's scary. You know, who could afford that? It's amazing. Hey, Dan, we've talked a lot this year about the eviction problem. Searchlight New Mexico has done some great reporting on how evictions are still happening despite those COVID-related moratoriums. 
What are we missing here on this front? Why, why? It seems pretty simple and elegant, but it's very bumpy. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, you know, there's kind of a complicated network of laws dealing with housing and evictions and things like that. And then there are also the ways that just people behave. Um, you know, many landlords um, ha don't want to accept uh, Section 8 tenants um, just mm -hmm. for their own, you know, their own philosophy. They don't. They don't want those kinds of tenants or they're afraid that their other tenants will be mad that they rented to someone who uh, gets a little help. Um, so it's it's difficult um, to kind of legislate a solution to this. Um, you also end up with um, uh, kind of a, a not in my backyard dynamic where efforts to build more housing or build um, high density housing often run into opposition from neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, that is something that uh, politicians respond to. Uh, it really is a, a difficult challenge for New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, Algin Online, regular Serge Martinez, we love having him on, does a lot of work in this area and talks about how, the, how quick the eviction process is. And I'm curious if in your view, I don't, can't speak for Las Cruces and how the eviction deal works down there, but perhaps we can find some way to slow this down a little bit because folks are being bumped out in the street fairly regularly at this point. Well, yes. And so this points to the need for um, adequate legal services um, mm -hmm. and even just uh, general procedural knowledge. I was just speaking to somebody who um, is in the midst of a, a, a dispute, not not a, an involving eviction, but involving property and uh, title to his property. And um, basically, it was just the, at this level of I can't afford an attorney and I cannot make heads or tails mm. of what I need to do procedurally to advocate for my interests and my legal rights. And mm. uh, in a circumstance where you have so many people who already are contending with a public health emergency, with loss of employment uh, related to that. Um, perhaps they were sick for a long time and are still sick. In addition to that, you have this legal hurdle of how to hold on to your housing, which if you lose it, immediately exacerbates all of your other problems, right. uh, health, physical, economic. And so really, I think that the problem just compounds all of the other issues that New Mexico is facing, which we had pre-pandemic and have been magnified uh, in the midst of the pandemic. Good point there. Jessica, the state did, as you know, got a lot of federal money to offer housing and rental assistance, but as tradition here, we had problems getting those funds distributed. How do we streamline programs like these? Well, so I think maybe the, the big thing to, to take away from that question is that we all view housing as a, a basic human right, right? Mm -hmm. There is this absolute need for it for for shelter, um, and we want to do everything we can to make sure that if you are entitled to some of those funds to help you ensure that you have housing, you get access to it. Um, as far as streamlining goes, I, I think this was an unprecedented thing for us. We don't have a lot, in my opinion, we don't have a lot of experience in getting it done smartly and quickly and well. Um, so it's all a, a learning process for us. I think um, maybe the um, bigger question is. How do we make sure that those who are in, in desperate need are actually understanding what their rights are and can advocate for themselves and are able to speak up and say, hey, I know that you have this, um, this program and you know, you know that you have these funds. I am speaking up because I want access to them. So beginning to advocate for themselves rather than waiting for it to trickle down from the top. Mm -hmm. 
Hey, Julianne, we also hear a lot of calls now for a return to rent control measures. It's amazing for those of a certain vintage rent control back in the 70s was kind of a big deal. You know, then it was gone. <laughs> Is that something we should be looking at again? And does it have a chance in Santa Fe? I think there's been a contingent in the community that thinks that might be a solution to consider. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's interesting the, the way that Dan framed kind of the decisions that landlords are making around which tenants to accept or not. Mm -hmm. um, and there's really this situation where they can be choosy and they can make decisions that you know, I think to, to Jessica's point too, um, are discriminatory and that people have a right to assert, yep. um, you know, challenges to that. People can't tell you they won't rent to you because you have children. Uh, that's against the law. It's against federal law. And I think that's, um, you know, there are a lot of circumstances uh, like that, that are really, um, this is a, a, a private sector situation where people who own property have control um, and are, you know, really the people who are renting are at their mercy. Yeah. And um, I think too that it's, you know, it's incumbent upon people who have stable housing and who do understand the law um, to, to also say, uh, to advocate for those people. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with renting to someone who gets a Section 8 housing voucher. That system is in place um, in order to give people a better quality of life. And we've recognized as a society that that's what we want. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to continue all the way to uh, actually let them use those vouchers to find homes. And I think that um, if more people were vocal about that and fewer people were worried about the not in my backyard um perspective maybe we could get somewhere on this mm -hmm. good points there that's all the time we have for this week but we'll be back next week with our top five stories of 2021. all right that's going to do it for this episode of new mexico and focus the podcast i am your host kevin mcdonald an executive producer here at new mexico pbs we so appreciate you downloading, subscribing to this podcast, taking us with you. It's a great way for us to uh, find you wherever you are at and share this content we work so hard on each week. Also a great way to share some of the extras we don't have time for in our on-air show. And uh, that's going to be the case in our next episode. A couple of recent Facebook Lives we did that uh, super interesting and informative one on the ins and outs of inflation with UNM economics professor, Dr. Janie Chermak. Uh, just a great one if you are following gas prices, milk prices, bed pr bread prices, not to mention supply chain issues that are in the headlines. Also, we're going to check in with a veteran armorer for the film industry here in New Mexico to talk about that recent tragedy on the set of the movie Rust. So a lot of great things coming up there. We hope you will join us. Until then, a big shout out to the entire New Mexico and Focus crew and the production staff, everyone here at New Mexico PBS. Have a terrific holiday weekend, and we'll be back with you again on Monday. Thanks again so much for subscribing. Leave us a review if you would. It helps out a bunch, and spread the word. You can find this podcast wherever you get them, and we do so appreciate you tuning in. So once again, have a terrific weekend. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.